Well, good morning, church. I declare you this morning to be the ecclesia. You are the called out. You are the called forth. Hallelujah. Yeah, there's value in that. So turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 4. We'll start off in chapter 4. And while you're turning there, I just want to pray over us very quickly, both you and me. Well, Lord, in the name of Jesus, we just uh, thank you for the opportunity to gather here like this, Lord. I thank you, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit invades this place. Lord, I yield myself to you, even my preparations to you. Lord, you do what you want to do. And I pray for the people that are hearing this message and ask that the words that they receive are of you and that they bring comfort and restoration to every person that hears them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the last time I had an opportunity to address all of you, um, I kind of I told the testimony of uh, being raised up in the independent premillennial fundamentalist Baptist church and um, how gracious God was and how gentle God was when he deposited the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Holy Spirit into me. What a wonderful thing that was. So today I want to do a little bit, uh, and this was the second part of my message. I actually had two parts when God gave me that first part. And so this is what I would call the prequel to that message. Hey, if Spider-Man can do it, I can do it. <laughs> so, so anyway, here's the prequel. And I've told this story a couple of times from this platform, but some of you haven't heard it, so I want to cover it very quickly for you. When I was a little guy, we were in the church that every week, every week, I would go to church, and the church was set up, and, it, and, and actually it was one of those old school Baptist churches, so there was a real long aisle right down in the middle. It actually looked like a 757 or something, you know, and um, um, the pastor, he was a good guy, but he would stand in the pulpit every Sunday and preach hellfire and brimstone. I mean, he brought it. And I would sit there, I'm a six, seven, eight-year-old guy, you know, and I'd sit there every Sunday and I'd listen to this hellfire and brimstone, and to be quite honest with you, it scared the snot right out of me. I mean, and Marietta talked about this when she preached, uh, so I would receive this and I would like be so scared that I would run to the altar when the altar call came every Sunday morning and get resaved if it were possible. Yeah, it was like really, really bad. And then to compound things, when I, was a, when I turned about eight years old, my dad saw fit, and he was a deacon in the church. And I don't know why he saw fit to do this, but on Monday nights, he went to a men's Bible study. And the men's Bible study was about three years of a study on eschatology or the book of Revelation. <sighs> So, 
at from, beginning at eight years old, every Monday night I would go with these group of men and they would have these, the, the, the man that taught the Bible study would have these charts that would go clear across the back of the room. And I don't know if you guys remember any, ever seeing anything like this, but I remember looking at the charts and it would have pictures of the, of the vials being poured out, the vials of wrath. And at the, at the far right end of the chart, when you looked at it, was the lake of fire in all of its glorious color. And I would sit there and I would listen to these lessons Monday night, weekend, and week out for about three years, and absolutely, positively get scared to death. I really would, you know. It was good study, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm well-versed in eschatology, yay. <laughs> but it did scare me. It scared me a lot. I mean, I remember thinking to myself, I will never, ever, ever be good enough. Every night when I would go to bed, truly, um, I would pray the little kid's prayer that you pray, you know. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Right? Well, every Sunday, because I was receiving seriously what was being preached from the pulpit, um, I would know that I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And so at the back end of my little prayer, every night, I would begin to ask God for forgiveness for these sins that I know that I had committed. Well, the list got longer and longer and longer because I would repeat them every night, and I actually had an order. And it was longer and longer and longer, and at times, I'd go to sleep, and um, I'd, I'd pray my prayer, and I'd start down my list, and I'd fall asleep going down through the list. And I'd wake up in the morning, and I'm like, hey, man. I, I didn't finish the list. <laughs> and praise God, I'm still alive. Wow, yay! Yay, thank you, Lord. How does that even happen? Well, what I didn't understand is that I didn't understand that I was receiving something that was not mine. I was receiving condemnation. It was not mine to have, and there was... No grace being spoken from the pulpit so that I could get rid of the condemnation that was coming to me. Not because of bad preaching. I'm not saying that at all. No. I'm just saying that this is how I perceived it. You know? This is how I received it. So, anyway. Let's get to the message. We'll come back to my little story in a little bit. Before we get to gospel, uh, uh, John chapter 4, I just want to re read a little bit from the creation story. You don't need to p turn there. Genesis 2, I'm going to read out of the complete Jewish Bible. 
They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Then there's an encounter with a serpent. In Genesis 3 says, they heard the voice of Adonai, God, walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. So the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Adonai, God, among the trees in the garden. Adonai, God, called to the man, where are you? I really like that question. Where are you? What the heck? That's God. What do you mean, where are you? To me, he was just checking them positionally. He answered, I heard your voice in the garden, that is the man, Adam. I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? That's God. Who told you that you were naked? We'll come back to that. So let's go to John chapter 4. We'll start with verse 3. He, that is Jesus, left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. Now that word needed is really important in this account. The reason that it's important is because it's the Greek word die. And what it means is that he had to, he must do this. It's the same word that, when, that Jesus uses when he says, the Son of Man must go and present himself to men and be crucified, or, or that when he t- teaches the disciples that uh, about the end times, he says, these things must come to pass. It's that same word. It's a godly imperative, a holy imperative. This must happen. This is God speaking that he has to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, uh, Sychar is also, we know it as Shechem, the same city that's the city that Jacob encountered in Genesis 33 and 34. It's where Dinah was uh, raped. Um, and in those accounts, we know that, the, um, that it says in verse 6, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat, sat thus by, by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jacob's well was outside the city. We know this because in the Genesis account, Jacob pitched his tent before the city, okay? So we know that this woman that we're getting ready to meet comes outside the city, and it's the sixth hour, therefore it's noon, okay? A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, I want to stop right there real quick and say, Listen, um, here is Jesus encountering this Samaritan woman There was no reason for them, really, uh, devout Jews would never go through this area in order to get to Galilee. They would go around to take the long course. And I think most of you have already heard this that have been around the church for a while. But what I want to emphasize here is that the woman sits down and Jesus 
ask her for something. This is really important. Now think about this, because I want you to get your minds around it. We're going to cover two more stories that are like this. But here is this, the, here is God, God, who turns to this woman and says, give me some water. He is the living water. He is the creator of water. As a matter of fact, he was around when the well was dug. <laughs> right? Okay. So the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? (laughs) What a rhetorical question this has to be in Jesus' mind. He's like, listen, you have no clue. I was around and looked at Jacob, I actually created the livestock. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever thinks of this water will th- drinks of this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw Jesus said, now listen to this. This is really important to, the, to this message. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. <clears throat> the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> so, so here's what I want to kind of get out of this part of it. Um, this woman is, is living, obviously, in this city. She is in condemnation. She is absolutely in condemnation. We know that for several reasons. Number one, it's noon. Women would typically come out and draw water from the well in the cool of the morning, Right? Secondly, she goes outside the city to Jacob's well in order to draw water. There is a well in the city. There's no doubt. But obviously, here is a woman with five husbands. And the one who is now, she is now living with is not her husband. So there's got to be great condemnation. Even though she is in a Samaritan city, which was kind of, for the Jews, it was kind of even a low-end situation, But even amongst the Samaritans, um, this woman is probably condemned by everybody that's in the city. And so the interaction goes back and forth with Jesus. And then picking up um, in verse 27, the disciples return. And they marveled that that Jesus was talking with a woman Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? Now, I imagine that um, probably in this account that the disciples on their way to get Jesus something to eat in the city probably passed this woman on the way out, and they probably gave her no regard whatsoever. As a matter of fact, they probably stepped off the trail to go around her because that's the way things were 
Verse 28, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men. Now, the woman then left her water pot. I think that that's significant for a couple of reasons. Number one, the fact that it's noted by the writer of the gospel says that, hey, he indeed was present when this was written. He saw what was going on. For him to include a detail like that is definitely something that he wanted to notate. To me, the water pot is significant because what is happening here through this interaction with Jesus is that this woman is going back and forth and she's recognizing now this indeed is the Messiah. And she leaves what she came for. She leaves her mission and gets converted to a new mission. She has a new focus. It's no more about the water and getting out there and getting the water. What is it about? Hey, this guy, I think, is the Messiah. So the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, Come and see a man who told me all the things I ever did. Probably uh, an overstatement on her part, but she is marveling uh, over the fact that she has encountered the Messiah. Okay. Could this be the Christ? And so the men went out, to the, out of the city and came to him. A very cool picture is going on here. We have a woman who is walking in condemnation, a woman that is walking in shame, she goes out so that she can be alone, so she won't be seen, so that she won't have to endure those things that are being cast at her by the other townspeople, and she encounters Creator God. She encounters the star breather, Jesus. It's amazing. And she goes back into the city and all of the men come out of the city. She becomes the first great town evangelist. And then in verse 39, it says, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So the Samaritans come out of the city, and they come to him, and they urge him, Jesus, to stay with him. And he did. He stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And they said to the woman who was condemned and shamed, now we believe, not even because of what you said, but we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So who told them that he is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Jesus. Jesus told them. So Jesus goes in to this city and proclaims that, hey, I am indeed what she said I was. I'm the Christ. I'm the Savior of the world. And I love this picture here because he's in Samaria, but he's already saving people that would not be considered by the Jews. It's an amazing picture. Isn't it cool? Yeah. I think it's cool. All right. So let's turn over a few chapters. We're going to go to John chapter 8, see another 
Jesus interaction. Praise God. I'll start with verse 2. Now early in the morning he, that is Jesus, came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. I want to stop right there and just say this about what's going on, because it's really important that you get your minds around this. We, all of us, peoples, us peoples, we can only approximate true justice. But when we stand in the presence of Jesus, and we will, praise God, when we stand in the presence of Jesus, that's going to be the first time that each and every one of us experience true love, true mercy, true grace, and true justice. These guys had no idea who they were messing with. They had no idea who they were testing. This is Jesus. Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. I love that picture right there. And I'll tell you why I love that picture. You know, a lot of people try to preach a message about what did Jesus write on the ground? Well, really, it doesn't matter. Here's the thing that's, that we should really note from this picture. Jesus stooped down. Number one, he gets down to that woman's level because they've cast her down. Number two is that he begins to write in the very earth that he created. Think about that picture. He's writing in the dirt, and he knows, he knows everything about what he's writing in. It's amazing to me. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her,
neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, I just want to capture this picture a little bit for you. Again, here we have a woman who had to be literally trapped by whomever caught her in the very act of adultery. They had to be planning this, there's no doubt, because the Jewish laws require that they can only bring accusation if there's two or more witnesses. So they grab her up in the very act of this adultery, and they drag her in the midst of where Jesus is literally teaching. So this is a very, very, very public place. And they cast her down. And they stand, and I imagine that they're looking at her on the ground, and there's probably several of them that are literally pointing their fingers at her. And then looking at Jesus and saying, aha, aha, we got this one. Condemnation and shame being brought against this woman. And what does Jesus say? She and he encounters her and gets to the level that she is at and says, neither do I condemn you. And then he releases her into her destiny. Go and sin no more. Praise God. Praise God. Awesome picture. Flip over to John 21. We're just skipping through John. Yay. John 21. This is another famous passage that I want to use. We'll start with verse 15. Jesus goes to encounter the disciples on the beach. Here in this, and this is a, what a wonderful picture this is. I want to point out also before we get started here, now we always think about this passage that I'm getting ready to read as the restoration of Peter, and it is indeed that. But you know, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus has already appeared to Simon Peter, and we don't know exactly what, and spoken with Simon Peter after he was resurrected. We don't know exactly what that uh, conversation looks like, but we know what this conversation looks like, so I'll start in, in, um, in verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He, Jesus, said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him the third time, Sina, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. Well, there is a truth right there. That's true right there. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, 
and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by which death he would glorify God, the death that would glorify God. Wow. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following. It's got to be John. And also, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is this one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, says to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Oh, I'm sorry. Who had also leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Pointing at John. And Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. The reason that I love this story is here is the man, Peter, who absolutely and positively is dragging around the amount of shame and condemnation that any of us can never, ever think about. We can never even conceive of this because here is a man who was with Jesus and, of course, received the news from Jesus that, hey, you're going to betray me. And he said, oh, no, I'll never do it. And he did it. He did it. He literally betrayed Jesus. And what we see in this story is we see Jesus, the resurrected, the creator God, resurrected now, going to, in a very public setting, because it's all recorded, amongst the disciples. And what is Jesus doing? He's taking away that condemnation, and he's taken away that shame. He is literally face-to-face with the man who has got to be so condemned that we can never even understand it, and he is saying, Peter, Peter, it's okay. It's all right. It's okay. You love me, and I know you do. Isn't that cool? So sweet. Sweet to the point that it's hard to understand that these encounters with Creator God are the things that it takes for us to experience the removal of shame or condemnation. But I love these stories because what it is is that these are three examples of our Lord Jesus taking people from a state of absolute condemnation and shame into a place that Jesus can actually use them. Every case, every case, he's setting things up. Jesus is every, setting everything up. After Jesus removes the shame, after he walks them out of condemnation, I think he probably looks at the restored person and he says, wow, now, now. Here is someone I can use. Here is someone I can use. So he looks at the woman at the well, and as she runs into the city excited, she's like, he's like, oh, here's someone I can use. And he does. And he looks at that woman who is cast into his midst full of, Shame and condemnation, caught in the act of adultery, and 
He looks at her and he says, where are your accusers, woman? And he removes that condemnation. And then he says, and he gives her this very direct, um, a, a very definitive directive, go and sin no more. And I think that as she goes, he's like, just the very act of what she is getting ready to walk out is someone, this is someone I can use. This is someone I can use. This is a changed life. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. And certainly with Peter, he's very definitively declaring, Peter, no more shame. No more condemnation. You're going to be someone that I can use. You're going to be someone that I can use. And brothers and sisters, I think that as he looks at each and every one of you here, he says, here is someone that I can use. And when he looks at me, he says, here is someone that I can use. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So receive that. Here is someone that I can use. Caitlin, I'm going to have you go ahead and come up here. We're going to start coming into for a landing here already because I want to leave plenty of time for ministry into this word that God has given me. So... um, There's a lot of condemnation and there's a lot of shame to go around in this world. And today, I want to make sure that we deal with that. Um, And we're going to have an opportunity to do that. And you know, what's interesting is that the way that the devil works is that he'll take you or take a person. And when he gets gets them to a point of condemnation gets them to a point of receiving shame, then it's easy for him to slip in these other things that come with that, these diabolical things that come up with that. So the condemnation, you receive the condemnation on yourself, and then the next thing you know, you're dealing with fear, and you're dealing with doubt, and you're dealing with anxiety. Yeah. You receive that shame and you gotta like, you gotta like, where in the, where does this come from? This is not of God. This is not of God. So where do these things, where does this shame, where does this condemnation come from? In order for us to minister into that, we need to really understand where this stuff comes from. And it's not necessarily where you think it comes from, believe it or not. Can you? Scripturally, we know that there's three places that this mess can come from. We do have an accuser. Revelation 12 says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Praise God, Jesus, 
There will be a time when Jesus casts down that accuser who stands and accuses you and me day and night. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. That's good news. It's coming. It's coming. But Jesus has already dealt with it for us. Shame and condemnation, where else can it come from? Well, it can come from others. I wish that this were not the case, but it is true. Matter of fact, uh, the book of Job is filled with examples where Job is really going through some stuff and he's got some buddies that are just hammering him with shame and condemnation. Really, what did you do? What sin was there? Even his wife, Job's wife, says, curse God and die. You know, brothers and sisters, probably, you know, maybe you were a little kid and, um, and when it, maybe your parents even, I don't know, but maybe your parents even said, you know, you ought to be ashamed. You ought to be ashamed. Come on. And maybe you received that. Or your friend said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Man, that's a heartbreaker. That's a heartbreaker. We ought to be speaking life over each other. But we do it inadvertently. So maybe you have received shame and condemnation from somebody else. Maybe you even got it off of, you know, social media, what a mess that is. I don't do social media, but I see enough of it where I can see, I read these things, you know, kind of a string of remarks, and boy, it doesn't take very long before it's, it's on. It's on. And people are really condemning the other person. And it's shame and condemnation and it's back and forth and it just never stops. Come on. This is not Jesus. And I want to tell you that there's one other area that condemnation can come through. Very scriptural. Condemnation, believe it or not, brothers and sisters, um, and I think that this is really what happened to Adam and Eve in our Genesis account. They weren't ashamed, and then this happened, and they became aware, and all of a sudden they had to hide from God. Where'd that come from? Where did the shame and the condemnation come from when I was a little kid, and I was hearing what is the truth from the pulpit, Where did that come from? Well, 2 Samuel 24 says, after David, King David, numbers the people, he said, and David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. 1 John chapter 3 says it this way, for if our heart condemns us, 
our heart. Can you imagine? Our heart can actually bring condemnation. Now, I'm not theologically deep enough to understand exactly how that all works, but what I do know is that we have an accuser, and he can bring it. Other people can cast and curse us with shame and condemnation. And then there's something that inside us, and I suspect that it's probably misguided conviction. Conviction raises up, and then we, our flesh just takes over and, and steers us into this condemnation place. I suspect that that's what it is, but one day I'll be able to ask Jesus about it. I don't know. So, but here's the good news. Here's the good news. Our good God, our good God, is in the business of heart surgery. Hallelujah. So the First John 3 passage continues like this. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. God is greater than our heart. Hallelujah. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, if our heart doesn't condemn us, what? We have confidence towards God. There are going to be some people this morning that walk out here with confidence towards God. Praise God. Yes, there are. There's no doubt about it. I have no doubt about it because you're here for a reason. Psalm 51 says it like this. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And so appropriate for this message today, Hebrews 10 says it this way, talking about Jesus. Let us draw near to Jesus with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is exactly what Jesus was doing when he was interacting with the woman at the well. He was getting ready to sprinkle her and purify her conscience. And when he interacted and looked down at the woman who was caught in adultery and he said, neither do I condemn you, her heart at that point was made pure. It was cleansed. And when he stood on the beach with Peter and he just talked to Peter and he said, you know, it's okay, Peter. You're going to do what I have called you to do. You're going to walk the wall, that, the walk that I have called you to walk. And Peter received that and from that day on he was sold out and was useful for Jesus. Hallelujah. Jesus wants to remove the shame of your youth. Some of you are still dragging that around. You've been saved. Hallelujah. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Praise God. It's awesome. And I know you have. But you still haven't laid down that shame of your youth. And that is like, 
I, I won't use this. This is certainly not my original thought, but um, it's like you have been cleansed. You have received it all that God has got for you. But it's like the devil has like a fish hook in your heart. And it's been there since the youth, since your youth. And every once in a while, when you think that you're, man, you are doing it all for the Lord God Almighty. And something just tugs on it and goes, yeah, but you're not all that. Remember that thing that you did that you haven't repented for? Remember that? Just, just a little tug. And it takes you out of the destiny that God has got for you. Well, I want you all here today to be able to walk from this place with a clean heart. I want you to all be able to walk away from this place with all shame and condemnation laid down. You know, Marietta preached a couple of weeks ago. She said that uh, revival is here. I declare revival is here. Hallelujah. But for revival to be here, revival has to be here. (coughs) Pardon me. Revival has to be here. So let's get on board. Let's get on board. Let's walk out of this place. Let's let's walk out of this place this morning. We're going to be clean. We're going to be restored. We're going to have that shame removed. We're going to have that condemnation removed. Yeah, yeah. Isaiah 54 says, Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will, ne- you will forget the shame of your youth. Some of you in here today are going to forget the shame of your youth this very morning. Hallelujah. It's awesome. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Hallelujah. Because you're going to have an encounter with that man the God-man, Jesus. He is the creator. And in every case here, we have that encounter face-to-face with God, Jesus. And he looks and he says, you know what? Neither do I condemn you. Some of you need that encounter now. Yeah, there's no doubt. Not painful. Not scary. Matter of fact, there's nothing to be afraid of. Hallelujah. There's two other things that I that God gave me to, to remind you all about. Number one is that there are some of you that are here in this place, and you guys can go ahead and start. And I'm just about finished. <clears throat> and then I'm gonna step down there and I want to pray. Okay, so two things going on here. First thing is that there are some of you that have been dealing with some chronic issues as far as your physical body is concerned. And the reason that you're dealing with those chronic issues is because you are dragging around spiritually this shame and this condemnation. And so your physical man is aligned with your spiritual man and it's not clean yet. So today is a good day to get clean of shame and condemnation 
so that you can get rid of that chronic mess that's expressing itself physically. And I believe that you will be healed today. Hallelujah. And the, the next thing that God told me is that I want to hearken back one chapter in the, in the book of John. There's a man, a disciple named Thomas. And Thomas was not there when Jesus presented himself to the disciples. So there's 10 disciples in a room, and Jesus comes and he shows himself. And Thomas is not there. So Thomas comes back to the room and he says, man, I missed it, but I'm not going to believe unless I'm able to stick my hand in his side. If I can see the wounds in his hand, then I'll believe it's Jesus. I believe that Jesus showed us. And Jesus, what does he do? Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. He doesn't, he doesn't go knock on the door and says, let me, let me go in and see Thomas. No, he walks through the door. He is the creator of the door. He walks right through it and he goes in and he presents himself to Thomas. And Thomas, all doubt, all shame, condemnation, right then, right there, is removed by Jesus the Messiah and he says the most the, the most encouraging thing in all of the gospels he exclaims to Jesus he says my Lord and my God my Lord and my God hallelujah isn't that cool what a declaration